Well, good morning, City Light Church. My name is uh, Jonathan Randall. I lead the college ministry here at uh, City Light. If you have your Bibles, open it up to 1 Samuel 28, 1 Samuel 28. If you pull out your program on the back of your program, you'll see sermon notes. And it says that Cameron Debity is supposed to be preaching. Uh, as you can tell, I am not the ginger special. That's what we call him on staff. Uh, but uh, uh, I got a text this morning. Cam uh, woke up with some really uh, debilitating headaches. And uh, so I am pinch hitting uh, here this morning uh, on our uh, sermon series in David. Uh, we don't normally do this, but would you mind just joining me in a word of prayer as we lift up uh, Cameron to the Lord? Oh, Father. Your plans and your providence and your will, I don't pretend to understand. But God, I know that you're good. And so God, I pray even now that you would minister to Kim, that your peace would overwhelm him, that your presence would just be with him. God, may he look to you in this moment. And God, we pray for healing. Would you heal his mind and would you remove these headaches? And now this morning, God, as we turn to your word, I pray for grace upon grace that we would hear from heaven this morning, that your word would speak and that the Holy Spirit would change hearts. It's in your son's mighty name that I pray. Amen. Well, about two years ago, uh, I decided to make a very wise choice of loading up my one-year-old and my three-year-old into a tin can of a car and decide to drive from Florida, or a drive from Colorado all the way to Florida. It's about 2,100 miles. Uh, This was to visit my family for Christmas. Terrible idea. Uh, It was one of those vacations where things just seemed to compile on top of each other. One thing led to another. By the time we arrived in Florida, I was asking this question almost every minute. How in the world did we get here? How did this end up like this? How did this happen? How in the world did we get here? Now, in fairness, if you're a parent, you're literally asking that question every day when you put the kids to bed. How in the world did we get here? How in the world did these kids not die? How did this happen? How did we get here? But when you travel across the country with kids, it's just, it's at a varsity level, right? Everything is just heightened and complicated, right? When you're cleaning out poop and uh, vomit out of a car seat and you're holding your kid's naked keister up in the parking lot and all these people are staring at you like, what are you doing? Like, like that's, I'm asking that question. I don't know what I'm doing and how did I get here? It's one of those moments where you're asking that question, how did we get here? Well, like I said, at the time we lived in Colorado and uh, that state received like two feet of snow that Christmas day. And so uh, we decided to leave the day right after Christmas. And as I'm like, if we could just get through Colorado, we'll be good. Nope. That was a terrible idea because we ended up in Texas and we ran into a winter storm called Goliath. I don't know what the protocol is for when you run into a winter storm called Goliath. Like this just... I, this trip kept getting worse and worse. And so we pull over and we're in Amarillo, Texas, and there are just signs flashing everywhere saying, take cover, there's blizzard coming. So I look at the weather app and I look to my wife, Lacey, and I'm like, if we stay here in Amarillo, 
Like, we are going to be buried here until Jesus comes back. That's how much snow was going to fall in that city. So against our better judgment, we forged on, and I'm in the middle of nowhere, Texas, and it is howling wind. I'm white-knuckling the steering wheel because it's swaying our car. I'm looking outside, and the overhangs of the gas stations are just swaying in the wind. It's pitch black. How did I get here? What did I get my family into? Well, we finally make it out of that, and we get to Dallas, and I'm thinking, okay, in the morning, we'll wake up, and everything will be good, right? Well, about 20 minutes from our destination in Florida in uh, the middle of the night, going 70 miles an hour, we decide to hit a deer uh, on the interstate in Florida. Our family was okay, but our car wasn't going anywhere, and so I, I get into the hotel. I'm exhausted. Our trip is delayed. This is a mess. Like, I considered selling the car flying back to Colorado and never talking about this nightmare trip again. It was one of those trips. One thing led to another. Things just compiled on one, uh, uh, one another, and we were left exhausted, terrified, and just wondering, how did we get here? How did this happen? Well, I know how it happened. I'm an idiot and decided to take my family across the country on vacation. Um, well, this morning, uh, we're going to see in our text uh, that we have been led to this same place where we should be asking this same question. How in the world did we get here? When you read 1 Samuel 28, you should get to the end of that chapter and ask, how did we get from here? And in fact, I would argue that if the book ended at the end of 1 Samuel and we didn't have 2 Samuel, we would not only be asking, how did we get here? But we would be asking, where do we go from here? What am I supposed to do with this story? I wonder if anyone in here this morning has been in this position before. Life has gotten chaotic. Disaster after disaster after disaster has come your way. You have made too many ill-advised choices where you think there is no way you can recover. You've struggled to hear from God and you wonder where is he in your life? And you're left asking, how did I get here? Well, if you're able to relate to that, First Samuel is going to be for you this morning. I want to focus in, like I said, on chapter 28, but let me give you some background uh, to what's going on here before we read this. In chapter 27, we see David, who is God's anointed. He is the rightful ruler to the throne of Israel. But Saul has repeatedly tried to kill him over and over and over and over again. And so David says... I am going to die if I, if I remain in Israel. And so he actually flees to the land of the Philistines, which are the enemies of Israel. Like how crazy is your life that you think you are better off, more safe, more protected in a land that is filled with your enemies? I mean, think about this. David had killed Goliath, who is the hero of the Philistine people. That would be like me running over Scott Frost with my car and then going and setting up a fraternity at UNL. Like, this is not going to go well. People are going to be like, aren't you that guy that ran over Scott Frost? Like, that, I, that's not going to go well for me. And so what David does is he's very uh, uh, why, or, uh, shrewd, and he uh, deceives the uh, leader of the Philistines and uh, tells him, hey, I'll, I'll go raid the Israelites, and I'll bring back some of the loot and share it with you. But he doesn't do that. He actually raids enemies of Israel and then comes back and shares the loot. And David's so successful at this that the Philistines actually recruit him into their army and say, hey, you are now going to fight on our behalf. You are going to go to war with 
Israel. Like, think about that. God's anointed king is about ready to go into battle against Israel. So what's David going to do? How's God going to get him out of this? Where did it go wrong for David? How did David get there? Well, what's interesting is the story doesn't answer that right away. It puts a giant pause button on that story, and chapter 28 is inserted. It abruptly pauses the story of David and moves to this creepy Halloween-type story where it's like Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and Star Wars kind of all like mash up together. First uh, Samuel 28 is an insane scene, but it, we, in it, we see the tragic ending of Saul. Now, I know our teaching series is on uh, David, and we're mostly covering his life, but I believe that the biblical authors are actually wedging this story of Saul in between uh, the story of David on purpose so that we, the reader, will understand that if we are to understand David and all that is going to move forward in his life, then we need to grasp how in the world we got to this position with Saul. If we're going to understand anything about David, we have to understand the downfall of Saul. So as we hit chapter 28, I want to unpack three points this morning that are going to show this tragic and downward spiral of Saul. And God is going to answer us and answer this question, how did we get here? And he's going to do it in this chapter. So my first point is this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Saul's dread led to disobedience. Saul's Dread led to disobedience. Picking up the text in 1 Samuel 28, verses 5 through 7, it says this. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to the servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant, servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Now, before we uh, uh, hear this, uh, these verses, we learn three important details in the story. Number one, Samuel, who's the guy that Saul normally goes to to hear from God, is now dead. We also learn that Saul has previously driven out the mediums and the spiritists and the necromancers. Necromancers is a, a really comp, a fancy word for someone who consults the dead, right? He's banished them from the land. So it's interesting in this text that now Saul is going to talk to one. And the other overarching scene that's going on is the Philistines and the Israelites are about ready to go to war. So Samuel's dead. Saul has driven out the mediums and the Philistines and Israelites are about ready to go to war. So in these verses, in 5 and 7, we see that Saul is absolutely terrified. He is so afraid that he's actually trembling. And the reason he's afraid is because he's uncertain how this battle is going to go. Israelite, or Israel and the Philistines are going to war, and since he can't talk to Samuel, because Samuel is dead, he does what every person does when they are confronted with an uncertain situation. They cry out to God, God, where are you? Answer me, help me. Help me figure this out, right? And what does Saul hear in return? Nothing. Nothing. God does not answer Saul. Therefore, Saul does something that he had previously outlawed. 
Saul's so desperate to hear from God that he does an act of disobedience to get there. He goes to a medium. He goes to someone who consults the dead for answers. You know, somehow I don't think young Saul, if there was like an Israelite Bible camp, he's like writing down in his journal, like, hey, when I get older and I become king of Israel, like I'm going to grow up and one day, right before battle, I'm going to consult a witch and try to figure out if we're going to win this battle. Like somehow I don't think that that's how Saul pictured his life going. And yet Saul ended up in this place because he compromised and he disobeyed and he let fear grip his heart. For us here today, I don't think we have to wonder what it's like to be in this position with Saul. How many of us have seen one thing lead to another in our lives? We've let compromise, compromises pile up in our lives only to wake up, look ourselves in the mirror and ask this question, how in the world did I get here? I didn't picture my life going this way. How did I end up here? How many of us have swore, I will never have sex before marriage? And then when God doesn't take away our lust problem, when God doesn't give us a spouse in our timing, we compromise and we disobey and we give in anyway. How many of us swore, I will never be that guy that makes my whole life about money? But we let consumerism in, we let greed come in, and then all of a sudden the pursuit of money begins to dominate our entire lives. The takeaway here, guys, is that what's on, our, what's on the inside of our hearts, if we contend, continually compromise and don't deal with those issues, it will eventually reveal itself on the outside. Our true character will eventually be exposed. And for Saul, the fundamental characteristic that dominated his whole life was this issue of fear. Saul feared what people were thinking of him. Saul feared that he was losing control. Saul feared that he didn't have the power that he thought he should have. And that led to all kinds of questions in Saul's mind. What if God isn't as good as he says he is? What if God is holding out on me? What if God doesn't answer me? What if God's pathway of obedience is impossible? And when those kinds of fears begin to rule your heart, You don't obey God like David did, who was a man after God's own heart. No, you obey God to use God, right? You are using God and you you let fear allow you to use God rather than obey God. The truth is Saul never really wanted God. He didn't want him. The only reason he would have obeyed, the only reason he was trying to go after God is because he wanted his answers that would benefit his agenda for his life. Saul was not going to God to get answers about God's agenda for Saul's life. He only wanted answers that would benefit what he wanted to do. This eventually led to Saul compromising on things. He said, I would never do that. And yet here he is doing those things. When Israel chose Saul to be king, the prophet Samuel said, hey, this king is going to take from you. He will be a king that is going to take what you possess. Isn't it true that sin also takes from us? Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. We think we can manage sin. We treat sin like some pet. We treat it like old yeller. The problem is is old yeller has rabies. And this dog will eventually attack you and will eventually kill you. We think we can manage sin. But sin will always take 
from us. We think, oh, I'll never compromise on that. But if we let sin hang around in our hearts, it will always take from us. It'll lead us down a path we never planned on going. And we will end up saying, how did I get here? Sin never gives us what we want. It always takes from us until we have nothing left and we are ultimately alone. We are hollow as a person. There's only one real thing that actually remains if we continue to let sin dominate our hearts, and that is selfishness. Selfishness is the only thing that remains in the midst of sin. This is where we find Saul. Saul, at this point in chapter 28, he has no prophet. Saul has actually killed all the priests in the land. David, God's anointed, is against him and hanging out in enemy territory. The ark of God is gone that held God's commands. Saul has nothing because sin is taking everything from him. And yet notice the selfishness of Saul. Verse 15 of chapter 28 says this, Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Check out Saul's answer. Saul answered him, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. See how many times Saul is centered on himself? Do you see how many times Saul refers to himself in this section? Do you think Saul really actually wanted to obey God as he trying to use God to get what he really wants? Fear of what other people think, fear of losing control, fear of not maintaining power will always lead to compromising with sin, which will always lead to greater and tragic loss, which in turn always leads to greater and greater and greater degrees of selfishness, which is the heartbeat of disobedience. Ultimately, disobedience comes from a place of selfishness. God, I don't want to do what you want to do. I want to do what I want to do. That is the heart of disobedience. It's selfishness. This leads me to my second point. Saul's dread led him to disobedience. And then the second point, Saul's disobedience leads to death. You see his progression go from fear and dread to his ultimate death. Saul goes to a medium to try to use her to get to God. And it says in verse 8, so Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. Saul is disguising himself for two reasons. One, he's the king who had expelled mediums. He doesn't want to be seen going and consulting one. He's also having to go through enemy territory to get to this medium. So he does not want to be seen. Sin will always cause us to cover up and keep it in the dark and keep people out of what we're actually doing. And you see Saul doing that here. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring for up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Okay, time out. Samuel's dead, remember? And now here he is popping up and talking to Saul and this woman. Okay, what is going on here? So just a little bit of a clarification here. Uh, number one, 
two options you can pick out of, out of here. Number one, either this woman is a fake and has just been hustling people, and so she's not used to this actually working, and therefore she's terrified. Um, or she's used to consulting people up, but maybe she's dealt with a little bit of the demonic. And instead of getting the demonic in this moment, now you have a prophet of God showing up, right? Either way, you can understand that this woman is terrified. God is doing something uh, unique and dramatic in this story to prove a point. Uh, picking back up the text uh, in verse uh, 12, it says, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew it, that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and he paid homage. So what's crazy about this story is it seems that the actual spirit of Samuel comes back from the dead to speak to Saul. But here's the irony of this story. That's not really the point of the story. The point of the story is that Saul really gets what he wants. What is Saul trying to do in this text? He wants to hear from the Lord. He wants an answer from God. And Saul gets it. The problem is it's not what Saul wanted to hear. Samuel tells Saul what he already knows, that the kingdom of Israel is no longer his, that it now belongs to David. And because of Saul's disobedience earlier in 1 Samuel, his, king, or his kingdom is not only going to be taken from him, but at uh, the next day in battle, Saul is going to die. Have you ever told God, why are you not talking to me? Why are you not revealing yourself to me? Why aren't you answering me? I can't hear you, God. How many of us have ever said that to God? And then maybe God responds with this subtle, small voice. Why aren't you obeying me? Why aren't you following my commands? Why aren't you doing the things that the scriptures tell you to do that you already know? To put it another way, how many of us read our Bibles and we just, oh, if I could just get that new, fresh insight, if I, if I could just see the scriptures in a way that I've never seen before, if God would just show up to me in my quiet times in a way that I've never seen, then I'd be good. And God's not answering you. Could it be, not saying this is all the time, but could it be that for you in your life, God is saying I'll give you fresh insight when you begin to do the things that I've already told you. I will, I will allow the scriptures to come alive in your life if you would just simply follow my commands and obey what I've told you to do. This is where Saul is at. He wants answers from God. He wants revelation from God, but he doesn't want it to actually obey. He wants to use it for his own control and his own agenda. And this was me three years into college. I, uh, I uh, graduated uh, high school uh, following Jesus, very passionate about uh, my faith. I went to church. I read my Bible. Um, I was evangelizing on campus. I had a lot of people saying, hey, I think ministry might be in your future, and then college hit. And for the first few years in, in my college academic career, I lived a double life. I still had 
a great attendance record at church. I, I still read my Bible. I prayed. I was involved in a small group. Heck, I led a missions trip. But I also went to parties. I also was getting drunk, and I also was chasing girls. And I was living this double life. And I remember during the midst of that, I was having all of these intellectual doubts about my faith. And I remember, I even have journals of this crying out to God, God, why won't you answer me? Why won't you, why won't you answer my questions? Why won't you solve my doubts? Why won't you answer my intellectual problems? And I just remember being confronted with that still small voice, John, you're not obeying me. I'll, we'll deal with the intellectual side. I'll give you answers to that. But do you really want those answers so that you can obey me? Or do you want those answers because you can use them for your own agenda in your life? And it took a very hard conversation from a really good friend to wake me up from this. And he basically said, John, God is not going to grant you special powers to figure out every single thing about God. However, he has given you his Holy Spirit so that you can obey everything that God has commanded. In that moment, my eyes were open and I began to confess and I began to repent and I began to admit to my friend that I had this, I was living this double life and I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to come to God expecting him to grant me uh, my agenda. I wanted to come to God and submit to his agenda for my life. For us here this morning, could we maybe put a pause button on asking God for a new word from the Bible? And maybe ask these questions instead. God, where am I failing to obey you from what I already know from the Bible? Where where are the areas of my life where I need to repent? What are the deep areas in my soul where I've been unrepentant? Saul finds himself at the end of his life, and yet he's still refusing to truly repent. He's still selfish. He's still looking for a way out. He's still trying to use God in this moment. Let's not wait till our deathbed to deal with the junk that's going on in our heart. In fact, J.D. Greer has this chilling warning where he says this, a repentance that would not change you in life won't save you in death either. A repentance that would not change you in life won't save you in death either. See, Saul didn't need to go through these elaborate, elaborate schemes to get a word from God. God had already revealed his word to Saul, and he just simply wanted Saul to repent, believe that God knew what was best, surrender the kingdom over to David, and deal with his sin. But Saul refuses. But church, I have good news for you and for me this morning. Your story is not over. You don't have to end like Saul. We don't have to go through elaborate schemes to hear from God. God has actually come to us in his son, Jesus Christ. He's not just spoken to us. He's shown up to us in the person and work of Jesus. And it's recorded in the word that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has dealt with our disobedience on the cross. The question is, is will you and I repent over that disobedience? And will we walk in the obedience that God has for us, stopping trying to use God for our own advantage and saying, I will submit to God and all that he has for me. I said at the beginning of this talk that 1 Samuel 28 leaves us wondering how we got here, but it also should have us asking, where do we go from here? If the book were to end there, where do we go from here? 
Well, I'm so thankful that the book doesn't end from there because believe it or not, the tragic ending of Saul is not where Samuel ends. But I think in that story, there is a sliver of hope to this question of how did we got here in this story. And this is my third point and last point for this morning. Saul's last meal leads to the Savior's last meal. So Saul's dread led to his disobedience. Saul's disobedience led to his death. But Saul's last meal can lead to the Savior's last meal. After Samuel told Saul he was going to die in battle the next day, the story picks back up in verse 20. It says this, Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. So he rose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman who the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. What a bizarre end to one of the strangest stories you're ever going to read in the scriptures. Saul, the king of Israel, when he was inaugurated as king, when Samuel the prophet came and anointed Saul to be king, Samuel, the prophet of God, made him a meal. And Saul was in the midst of the promised land, surrounded by 30 people. And yet here is the end of his life. It's not Samuel who's making him a meal. It's a witch. And Saul's all alone with just a couple of servants in enemy territory. What a tragic ending. And yet this end is actually God's word ringing true. Because in the beginning of the book, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, in Hannah's song, Hannah's song in chapter 2 is the way in which that we can understand all of the book of Samuel. It operates like a table of contents, if you will. And verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2 say this, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalted the horn of his anointed. Is not David the faithful one who is the true anointed king? Notice where Saul is receiving strength from. Is he getting it from God? No, he's getting it from a witch. He's cut off from God and he is in darkness. The text is meant for us to compare and contrast David and Saul. The detailed irony is that while Saul is being punished in chapter 28 for his specific sin of not killing this uh, people group called the Amalekites, you can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 15, David at the same time is in enemy-occupied territory, and he is actually destroying these enemies of Israel, the very thing that had cost Saul the, uh, the kingdom, David is actually doing in enemy territory. While Saul, who's Israel's choice for king, is all alone in God's land, David, who's God's choice for king, is with God's presence in enemy territory. Saul goes to a witch for guidance. David in chapter 30 is going to go to the Lord for guidance. The takeaway here is that God is never silent in the story. He may have been 
silent to Saul. It may be to us in our lives that he is silent. It may be that we wonder, God, how in the world did I get here? But in God's kingdom, things may be at their worst, but God is always at his best. It's not by our gift set or our resume or our bank account that we will prevail, but it is by God's providence and by God's protection. Saul is asking, how did I get here? And God is saying, I am raising up a king. I am providing for you. This is not the end. Saul's tragic end is not the end of my work in this world. To close, I want us to picture Saul. I want us to picture Saul on the night before he is to be killed. He is trembling with fear. He is breaking, friend, or breaking bread with a few friends in the middle of the night. If you know your Bible, does that sound similar to another story? Hundreds of years later, where a rabbi named Jesus was trembling with fear, breaking bread with a few of his friends on the night before he was going to be executed. The difference is Saul died for his own sins. Jesus died for the sins of the world. In some very real respects, you and I need to see ourselves in Saul. We've all compromised in life and done things we swore we'd never do. We have ignored God with the way we've lived our lives, all the while complaining that God is ignoring us. We've used God to meet our own personal agendas. We've taken from others to set up our own kingdoms where we treat everything in life as revolving around us. And we've all received a death sentence for our sins. But enter Jesus Christ. Jesus enters in and says, I will take the last meal. Your, Saul took his last meal in bitterness and in anger and in sadness and in wrath because it, represent, it represented his own destruction because of his own sin. You and I will one day have a last meal where we will go into the ground and we will die. But Jesus enters into the story and says, I will take their last meal. All of their sin, all of the anger, all of the bitterness, all of the wrath that was coming their way, I will take it on me. And that's what Jesus Christ does for us. We're going to enter into a time of communion, but I want us to see that Jesus is the ultimate anointed one, that David points us to God who is ushering in a whole new kind of kingdom where God is taking our stories of how did we get here and he transforms them by his grace where we're no longer left wondering where do we go from here because we know the answer to that question is the way of Jesus 100 times over. At the end of Christ's life, it looks like a tragic ending, but it's in that ending that you and I find redemption to our own tragic stories of sin and disobedience. You might be here this morning and you're saying, I'm not Saul. I haven't gone and consulted mediums. I haven't done this. I haven't tried to kill people. But how many of us in our heart of hearts have tried to use God for our own agenda, trying to get answers from him so that we can control God for what we want to do in life. And at the end of the day, we're being selfish because we're saying, God, I don't want to follow your way. I want to follow my way. Some of you in here this morning, you say, I'm not only Saul in that text. I've done a whole lot worse. I've done a whole lot worse in my life. Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Grace is for everyone. Grace is for everyone. And everyone in this room, whether you've been following Jesus for your whole life, and maybe you have issues in your life where you're saying, yeah, I'm not really obeying God. 
I've been disobeying here. Or maybe you're at a position where you don't know Jesus and you're asking in your own life, how did I get here? Because you haven't been following the way of Jesus. Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. The answer for both of you is the same. It's the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's true repentance. It's turning from your sins and turning to the work of Jesus. That's what communion is all about. So this morning, if you're asking that question, how did I get here? And where do I go from here? This morning, would you look to Jesus who's wishing to rewrite the tragic ending? You might walk out of here knowing that his protection, his king rightfully rules and reigns. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you that, God, you intervened into my life And God, I don't have to have the same tragic ending as Saul. God, the downward spiral of fear that leads to disobedience, that ultimately leads to death, God, does not have to be my ending because Jesus steps in and takes the last meal. And so, Father, for those of us in this room this morning who want to experience the life that you give us, God, would we turn to you this morning? Would we turn to you as our rightful king? Would we repent of our sins? And would we walk out of here in the Spirit's power, obeying all that you have for us? It's in your son's mighty name that I pray. Amen.